It is Tuesday, July 26th here in DraftShark Studios in Rochester, New York. My mom's birthday, actually. Happy birthday, Mom. I'm sure that you're watching us on YouTube right now. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. With me, as always, is Jared Smola. Uh, Jared, the first of our annual Big Three articles landed on DraftSharks.com this morning. It's the comeback player. I mean, this was Cooper Cup last year, so it's going to be tough to top (laughs) that one. But that said, I was fully on board with Cooper Cup then, I'm more excited about the player that is in that article this year than I was about Cup. That's what I keep saying, too, and I don't want to jinx it, obviously. (laughs) Um, But, man, I mean, we obviously did not expect Cup to do what he did last year. Um, So I honestly feel better about this player right now than I did about Cooper Cup at this time last year. And I'm not saying this guy's going to have, you know, that type of season that Cup had, but I'm I'm pretty confident this this is a guy you want to pick, and he's still coming out of value in drafts right now. And of course, if any of us had any idea what was coming for Cooper Cup, he would have been going earlier in drafts. But that's the key to this thing is finding the guys that have that high ceiling from where they're going, where you don't necessarily have to reach for them. But if everything breaks right, they could be league winners like Cup was last year. So check out that article. That's only for DS Insiders. We are in the midst of a main event draft, a slow draft on FFPC, where we are not in position to get that player that's in the comeback article. But things are going pretty well, I would say, Jared. And you can find the running write-up for that slow draft on DraftSharks.com. And it's free to read for everybody. You don't have to be a DS Insider to get that one. Yeah, it's been fun. I feel I feel like you know we, we officially made it to fantasy draft season now that we're hopping in a main event. And, and we'll be doing some more of those as we get into August, some of the live ones. But we hopped in a slow one here. I think I think when you have four guys drafting, so, you know, it's me, Matt, uh, Kevin, and Adam all teaming up for this. We needed to do a slow draft because we need time to uh, argue over our picks, hash out our picks. So it's, 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 it's been good so far. Yeah, it's freaking annoying to draft with other guys. But, I mean, you know, ultimately, I don't think anybody involved is enough of a pain that it's that tough a process. I've heard plenty of other people talking about arguing with their draft partners, and I would imagine that ours are pretty mild in comparison. I think so, and I think, um, you know, we're all sort of on the same guys. It's really been an issue of when to target certain positions, I think, rather than you know, arguing over players, which um, is interesting. And we're, I'm trying to trying to capture all that in the article, so you can check that out on Draft Sharks. It's, it's a free read. Yeah, it certainly helps that we're all going to also have solo shots at this tournament, so it's nobody's only shot at going for the million. Your own drafts, of course, are coming right up. That's probably why you're listening to us right now. You should become a DS Insider now if you haven't done so already, because that way you will be armed with the Draft War Room, which we're using for that slow live draft it syncs to basically any league hosting format that you might be playing on this year i know i'm gonna have my draft war room armed tonight synced and with the sidebar up on ffpc because i'm in the pros versus joe's draft tonight so that's key for that best ball tournament we got super no it's not super flex for that one but we got tight end premium so you know anytime especially if there's some um you know, some quirk to the scoring system or the lineup settings that I don't always draft in. It helps me to have that guide there on the side. Doesn't mean I'm always going to take the top player on my draft war room board, but it definitely helps me to evaluate where the values are and where I should be going and what might lie ahead for next turn. Yeah. And that live sync is so huge. I did my pros versus Joe's on Sunday night and I, I believe it's a one minute timer for those picks. So it flies pretty quickly. And, you know, to have the players, just coming off my, my board automatically, not having to make those clicks and be, you know, clicking over different screens. It's just super helpful. It kind of lets 
lets you settle into the draft, relax a bit more. And I think make better picks when you're not, you know, scrambling to make sure your, you know, rankings and, and cheat sheets are up to date. Definitely. Cause even if I don't necessarily want that top guy, it's like a fallback. If I'm like, I don't know what to do. Fine. I guess yeah. I'll just take this top guy and we'll reevaluate when we get to next turn. It's gotten smoother this year, the sink, and it's got that sidebar that goes not on every yeah. site, but it is on underdog. It is on FFPC, which I'll be using tonight. So that thing uh, is especially helpful. Now, if you're getting ready to fire up your 2022 fantasy football leagues, I'd recommend doing so on Fantrax because you go to Fantrax.com slash draft sharks. You can set up a totally free league. You can import a league from where you were playing before. It is completely customizable, easy to set up. They can handle all of the scoring quirks. They got people to help you out. If you reach a spot where you're like, I don't know what to do from here, or you're having trouble getting something to work. So, you know, go on there, set up a free, free league. And Jared, I'm not sure if we're supposed to tell people about this yet, but they've got a pretty cool August promotion coming up for anybody who registers a league on Fantrax.com slash DraftSharks in August. They're going to enter a drawing and Fantrax is going to choose one league, send that league to an NFL city of your choice and give you spending money. Where would you go <laughs> if you're in that winning league, Jared? You know, I, I, I was thinking about this and... You know, the non-football guy in me might pick something like Seattle just because that's like a city. That's like near the top of my list of cities I haven't been to that I want to been to. But, man, I, I I don't know if I could sit through a Seahawks game this season. So I, I ended up I, – I think I'd go L.A. to a Chargers game. Um, you know, I think that that's – I think we know what we both have money on. The Chargers win it all this year. L.A. is a fun city. We'd, we'd get out, out of the snow into nice weather. So I, I think I'd choose Los Angeles and go to a Chargers game. I'm honestly surprised you didn't start it with Vegas. If somebody's sending you to any yeah. city and giving you spending money. I, I'm going to get crushed for saying this, but I think Vegas is a bit overrated. <laughs> oh, I, I'm honestly not personally a Vegas guy either. I would probably land on, well, I, I guess I shouldn't say probably because it would take a lot of thinking, but I think New Orleans would be a favorite of mine uh, that would be in the mix. Denver's another place that I would like to get to. So, you know, lots of options out there. You could let the team drive it. You could let the city drive it. But either way, it's a cool promotion. Go to Fantrax.com slash DraftSharks. For now, we are going to move on to our penultimate divisional preview. We've gone through six of these already. We are to the East divisions. We're doing the NFC East today, Jared. And alphabetical order starts us with the Dallas Cowboys, where probably to the chagrin of Cowboys fans, it's the same coach as last year. <laughs> yeah, although not to the chagrin of fantasy owners, because this has been a good good offense to invest in for fantasy a big reason for that is because this offense so so it's uh mike mccarthy back for his third season with the team kellen moore back for his fourth season as offensive coordinator dallas has finished top six in plays and top two in situation neutral pace in all four sorry in all three seasons under Moore so far so fast-paced offense lots of plays they have finished uh number one in yards in two of moore's three seasons including last year um, they've been kind of middle of the pack in pass rate and situation neutral pass rate. But again, when you're running so many plays, you know, Dallas has finished top 10 in pass attempts, despite, you know, being middle of the pack and in, in pass rate because they're running so many plays. So, um, I'd expect something similar this year. I think, you know, if you're, if you're looking at which teams are going to run the most plays, which is important to look at when you're, you know, projecting fantasy stats, I think, you know, Dallas is a good bet to, to, to rank among the top five again this season. 
Yeah, Mike McCarthy was an unimaginative choice to be the new head coach, but Kellen Moore is still there as the OC, which seems like a positive. There were disappointing stretches for the team last year, but they finished, what, seventh in offensive, sixth in Football Outsiders offensive DVOA, a rebound from 24th the year before where they lost Dak Prescott early in the year to that ankle injury. So it was a good offense, certainly some changes this year. So we'll see how things take and what that means for everybody. We'll go through all the positions. But first, the run-pass split, Jared, I, I just projected it at 59-41 matching last year's. It's really right in the range of where they've been the past three years. So it seems like it should be a fairly predictable offense in that area. Yeah, they've been 58% pass, 61.5%, and 59% pass in Moore's three seasons. I, I went at 59% pass again this year. Um, I do have con- some concerns with this offense, which we'll get into. On the offensive line, they obviously lost um, some some pass-catching weapons uh, so, you know, maybe that pushes them closer to, to the, you know, run side of that. You know, I don't, I don't think they're going to hit the 61 and percent pass they were in 2020, but, you know, 59% for me, right where they were last year. Yeah. And I, I think that we expect them to be at least competitive, you know, contenders for the division. Yeah. We'll see about for the, the conference overall. I wonder if having a healthier Zeke Elliott, and we'll get to the running backs more in a minute, but I wonder if him being healthier makes them lean a little bit toward the run, especially when you consider what has left at wide receiver and the, the injury to Michael Gallup. But, you know, before we go further into that, let's talk about the quarterback because Dak Prescott rebounded last year from that injury the year before seventh among fantasy QBs and fantasy points last year, of course, depending on your particular format. Um, That was his first year back from the 2020 ankle injury, which happened in week five, I believe. 11 of his 16 games found Dak in the top 12 last year, seven top six finishes. So pretty good. Only Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes finished among the top 12 more often in 2021. When he wasn't excellent, though, he got kind of bad. Also five weeks finishing QB 20 or worse last year. That's a worse number than he had in 2019, which is his last previous healthy season. So it was kind of boom bust Dak last year. Yeah, it was. And if you remember, he spent all last offseason rehabbing that ankle injury. And then he suffered that right shoulder strain in late July, like one of the first few days of training camp last summer that really limited him for most of August. Um, so I don't know how big of an issue that was. His his rushing was down last season uh, pretty considerably. Career low, 3.0 carries and 9.1 rushing yards per game for Dak. Uh, he had averaged 3.8 carries and 19 rushing yards per game over his first five NFL seasons. Um, I, I, I think the ankle issue that, you know, he he was rehabbing all last offseason probably played at least a little part in that. And head coach Mike McCarthy did say back in June that the team plans to utilize Dak's legs more this coming season. So that's good news. Again, you know, getting to my concerns, though, I mean, Amari Cooper gone, Cedric Wilson gone, Michael Gallup, probably out for I'm, I'm assuming now about the first half of the season after tearing his ACL in early January, he didn't undergo surgery until, until early February on that knee. Um, and then again, the offensive line. So they lost right tackle Lyle Collins. Uh, they actually had to release him for salary cap reasons. Um, they lost guard Connor Williams to Miami. So, you know, two starters on the line. Ty- Tyron Smith is still a stud, but he's, you know, missed 20 games over the past two seasons with injury. So this whole line has been one of the league's best for a while now. Um, it, it certainly might drop off in 2022 a bit. So those are my concerns with Dak Prescott, but um, you know, he, he's been a top 10 fantasy quarterback as far as points per game in three straight seasons now. So even if he drops off a little bit, you know, he can still give you quarterback one production. 
Yeah, certainly valid concerns up front. They were very banged up on that O-line last year, though. Lyle Collins played about half the season. You mentioned Tyron Smith has missed quite a bit of time over the past couple of years. So, you know, there's a chance that we at least get a similar offensive line performance to what we got last year, which was not what we had come to expect over the previous few years. I wonder overall whether we're underrating Dak a little bit in having him toward the bottom of QB one territory. It's really not something that's concerned me enough that I want to boost him way up because basically anybody in that range could finish either, you know, 13th or fourth. So I'm not worried about missing on the top overall scoring QB. So I think to me, Dak is more of like a safety net fantasy pick Mm -hmm. right now than a value target in drafts. I think that rushing is key, and you know, we, we might be a little too low on his rushing projections right now, so we might want to take another look at that. But again, you know, he's a guy – I have those concerns. Honestly, my, my biggest concern is the weaponry. Like, right. it's It's been a loaded cast for the past couple of years, but now it's like C.D. Lamb and not much else to start the season. You know, it's, it's Dalton Schultz is the next most proven pass catcher. Um, so we'll see how that goes. We'll see about Michael Gallup's rehab. We'll see how Jalen Tolbert – uh, develops over the next month here. But um, yeah, Dak's going in a range where I do think he's a, a good pick, even though I have those concerns. Yeah. And those concerns are what have kept it at a wondering if I have him too low rather than a fretting that I have him too low. Yes. On to the running backs. Ezekiel Elliott partially tore his right PCL in week four last season. Did not miss a game at all, though. Played through it the rest of the way. If you look at his numbers, it, you know, it's tough to know for sure, but it's quite possible that that limited him the rest of the season. And it, it's tough to imagine that not affecting a running back to at least some degree. But numbers wise, 5.3 yards per rush through four games last season, 3.7 yards per rush the rest of the way. Zeke had 16 plus carries in six of the first seven games. And the only one of those in which he didn't was that week one at Tampa where they barely ran the ball at all. From week eight on, he averaged only 11.9 carries and 42 rushes per game. So quite a big dip from the early season Zeke, which had 95 plus rushing yards in three straight games from weeks three through five. He had no more games of more than 52 rushing yards until week 18 when they faced a resting Eagles team. You know, how much of the early season version of Zeke or the past version of Zeke we get, that's kind of anybody's guess at this point as he's just getting older in general. Yeah, two of Zeke's best four PFF grades of the season came in those first three weeks before he suffered that knee injury. So, I mean, to me, you can't argue that the knee injury was a factor last season. Um, you know, Zeke just turned 27. He's entering his seventh year in the NFL. If you look at our aging curves that we use for our dynasty projections, th- those say to expect 90% of peak production in year seven for a running back. It's really year eight when that drops to 80%. So that's when you really have to start to worry. I just wonder, though, if Zeke is older than his age and, you know, career length right now suggests he has uh, 1,650 career NFL carries. That's the second most among active running backs behind only Mark Ingram. So he has racked up a lot of touches. Um, And then you look at, you know, how good Tony Pollard has been, you know, Pollard easily beat Zeke Elliott in PFF rushing grade and elusive rating last season. Again, I do think Zeke's knee injury has a lot to do with that. Um, So I, you know, I think, I think Pollard deserves to gain some touches at Zeke's expense. The question is, are, is Dallas going to do that? Because, you know, the, the amount of money they're paying Zeke Elliott, um, they might, you know, feel obliged to just continue uh, kind of, you know, forcing him into that workhorse role. Zeke averaged 24.2 carries per game back in his second season in 2017. Every year since then, that number has declined down to 18.8, 16.3, and then 13.9 last year. So the question at this point is, 
how much of last year's decline was for the knee and how much was the team doing what it should do really. And this is a case where you can look at it and say, it's just, it plainly would be smart for them to limit Ezekiel Elliott's carries more than they have before last season and give some more to Tony Pollard, who is just a more efficient runner and different in style. So like it would benefit their team to get different running styles out there and to get the ball into the hands of this more efficient younger guy. I'm not saying I think Tony Pollard is going to overtake Zeke Elliott, but I do think that if the coaches are being honest with themselves, they'll realize that we should at least see the kind of split in their workloads that we saw last year when Tony Pollard did get more than he had gotten in the previous two seasons. Yeah, Pollard last year, second in PFF rushing grade, ninth in elusive rating among 50 qualifying running backs. And then in the passing game, 22nd in PFF receiving grade, but third in yards in yards per route run among 51 RBs with 30-plus targets. So he was efficient on the ground. He was efficient in the passing game. Um, Pollard last year, 41st in half PPR points per game in that you know 1B role behind Zeke Elliott. So I, I think that that's kind of his floor this season. I don't see his role shrinking his role could grow from there. He, you know, could jump into the top 35 running backs in, in, as far as points per game goes. And then we've seen if, you know, if Zeke misses time, Pollard's going to be an RB one. So he, he's one of those guys who I think is an elite handcuff, but also is going to give you some standalone value. Last year, he got 31.4% of the carries, 7.7% of the targets in his 16 games. Previous highs in shared games with Zeke were 21.8% of the carries, 5.1% of targets. So significant rise there. I would like to think it would be closer to last year's numbers, even with a healthier Zeke, just to you know get the more efficient guy on the field and try to preserve their aging running back. So you know we'll see how much smart coaching there is here. I, I I agree that the that if you draft Pollard, what you're hoping for is Zeke Elliott going down, but he does contribute more than a typical, I guess, I, I don't know if I should say typical number two, because there are plenty of backfields that are more split than this one. So I guess I, I don't think we can expect as much from Tony Pollard if Zeke is healthy as we might get from, say, Ramondre Stevenson, but it is more of a clear handcuff situation than New England's is. Yeah, I mean, I think Pollard has Alex Madison level upside if the starter goes down, you know, as a handcuff. But Pollard's going to give you more value than Madison if the starter ahead of him is healthy. Yes, definitely. On to the pass catchers, and CeeDee Lamb is obviously in the spotlight. And the question on him heading into the season would have been, is he a guy who has not been able to earn targets yet? And I think the changes in the wide receiver core, which we've already started getting into, it might make that kind of a moot point because I don't know that Dallas has much of a choice other than to ramp up his target share this year. We've got Amari Cooper gone, who was around a 20% target share guy when he was there. Michael Gallup certainly doesn't seem like he, like we should expect him to be ready uh, early in the season and might not be himself at any point this season. So behind that, we've got the tight end who was not a 20% target share guy and is not an elite player for that position. We've got rookie Jalen Tolbert and we've got James Washington on a one-year deal after a disappointing start to his career in Pittsburgh. Yeah. I mean, I, I buy into the targets are earned thing, but competition also matters when you're looking at, you know, how many targets these guys are earning. So to me, you know, for, for lamb to earn a 17.4% target share as a rookie, then a 20% target share last year alongside Amari Cooper and alongside Michael Gallup for half that season and alongside Dalton Schultz. I mean, I think that's a pretty, Encouraging start. Lamb improved his PFF receiving grade and yards per route run from his rookie season to year two. He was 10th among 90 qualifiers in PFF grade last year. He was 20th 
in yards per route run, you know, first round pick looked like a great, great prospect coming out. I think, you know, that the kind of path is clear now for him to gain that, you know, 23, 24, 25% target share in this fast paced, high volume passing game. So I believe we have land projected for the sixth most targets among wide receivers right now. Um, you know, that's a, that's a range I'm comfortable with. And if he does that, you know, he, he's a good bet to finish as a top six fantasy wide up. And especially if we, as we've talked about before, guys like Tyree Kill and Devontae Adams, who have typically been ahead and in that wide receiver, that first round wide receiver tier, they have questions facing them this year, which brings down the top of that group. So I'm comfy with where CeeDee Lamb is, even if it's high versus what we have seen from him so far. And, you know, again, Michael Gallup is somebody I'm not drafting right now. We'll see what the summer looks like for him. Jalen Tolbert has gotten some first team work and some, Praise from the coaching staff. I think he's interesting, but now we're talking about, you know, later in drafts and only targeting upside with little risk if they don't uh, contribute yeah. anything. And Tolbert's been a buzzy player in fantasy circles, even the, the last few weeks. Um, and I've noticed his ADP climbing. So um, we'll keep an eye on that. I didn't, I didn't think he was a great prospect coming out of South, South Alabama. He spent five years in college, didn't win a starting job until his redshirt sophomore season. So that was his third year on campus. Um, you know, he did have a nice 2020 season, a really big 2021 20, uh, season, 1,474 yards on 82 catches. Um, but again, he was a you know fifth year college player at South Alabama. Um, you know, he is, he is 6'1", 194 pounds, uh, ran a 4'4", 9'40". I liked his deep ball skills on tape. So I do think that makes him like a pretty good, replacement for Michael Gallup, who does a lot of that deep ball stuff. Um, and I also think James Washington isn't very good. So I do think Tolbert has a pretty good chance to, you know, win this job and that's going to make him the number two wide receiver in this good offense to open the season. So he's definitely interesting. I just, I just, you know, I don't, I don't want the ADP to get out ahead of itself. So we'll have to keep an eye on it. Yeah. We'll talk about the ADP in a minute. So let's go to Dalton Schultz now before we get to ADP review and obviously an out of nowhere breakout last season, nobody entered last season thinking that he had the kind of upside that he finally showed. And he helped me win some money in FFPC in the main event last year. Um, Mm -hmm. That said, I think it's gotten, I think his evaluation has gotten a little bit out of hand heading into this year. Yeah, me too. Just because I don't think he's an elite talent. Like I, I, I love the situation. Um, you know, he was sixth among tight ends and targets last year, and there, there's room for him to see even more this year with you know Cooper gone and, and Gallup out for likely the first half of the season. Um, you'll be even still. Schultz was only ninth among tight ends and expected half PPR points per game last year. He finished fifth in actual points per game. Um, but you look at you know yards per route run, just 16th among 35 qualifying tight ends. Um, so yeah, I, I just I, I I like the player. Don't like price tag on Schultz right now 13th and target share at the position too so he benefited from target volume certainly might benefit from that again but it's just you now have to pay for it and let's get into that ADP review section to talk about how much you have to pay to get it we talked about Dak Prescott he's toward the bottom of QB1 territory at QB11 in underdog drafts right now Russell Wilson Trey Lance Tom Brady are within a round ahead of him Matthew Stafford less than a round behind him there all those guys are kind of floating in the same area and I really I think it's a fair range for Dak Prescott I mean, it's more than fair. Again, quarterback seven in points per game last year. He was quarterback one in points per game in 2020. It was only five games, but he was on a a massive pace. And then 2019, he was quarterback three in fantasy points. So again, I have concerns with the pass catchers in the O-line. But you know, those concerns are pretty much baked into the price tag. So I think he's a a fine pick. He's not like a top target for me. But if, you know, Dak's the top guy there and I'm looking for a quarterback, I'm, I'm totally fine with him at quarterback 11. 
he definitely comes much more into focus for me if I do land uh, CD Lamb in round yes, two. For sure. Um, because I do think that if Dak Prescott has a truly big year, that he's almost definitely bringing CD Lamb with him. Running yeah, back, Zeke Elliott is at RB17, first half of round four. He's at the same level in FFPC drafting, which is more lineup setting at this point. And Tony Pollard, RB27, end of round seven. He's going a little bit earlier in FFPC, FFPC leagues. I think both of those guys are in fair ranges right now. I wouldn't be surprised yep. if Pollard starts climbing in those high stakes tourney drafts, though. Yeah, I've been off Pollard at costs the last two years. I'm on him this year because, again, I think at RB27, even if Zeke has a healthy season, I think Pollard, you know, he might not finish RB27, but I don't think he's going to kill you at that price. And then if Zeke goes down, if Zeke just continues to show signs of decline and Dallas decides to give more work to Pollard, then, you know, Pollard could definitely you know be, be a league winner at that RB27 price. I think whether to draft Tony Pollard really depends on what else you're building at running back around him. If you've already drafted two guys that you know are going to be starters for their teams, then I like Pollard for the upside in case Zeke goes down. Because I think you really are going to need Zeke going down to comfortably start Tony Pollard. So I think either already having two decent to strong starters ahead of him makes him a good option. I think if uh, otherwise you need to be taking a pool of running backs yeah. from which you can pull potential starters. I think if you're just relying on Tony Pollard as, you know, like a late second and then you're waiting on getting others or, yeah. you know, pairing him up with other guys who are compliments, you're setting yourself up for headaches in season. Yeah. He, he's a bit of a luxury pick. If you're taking him, you know, in the seventh or eighth round, um, but again, I think you, you have confidence in yourself to, you know, build a build out a team around him with those first six picks and then the picks behind him. And again, he he just, you know, to me, it's like it's Pollard, Dylan and Madison are the three running backs where, you know, if something happens to the guys in front of them, they are league winners. They are top five running backs if they're you know getting most of the work. Yeah. And now if you're in a position where you could like at, at a turn, you take let's say you took one running back in the first two rounds, then at another turn, you take Pollard and either Miles Sanders or CEH. I think that's a good way to do it because then you've got, you know, one of those two guys is probably going to at least be the lead touch player for his backfield without matching the ceiling that Pollard has if Zeke goes down. Yeah, for sure. You want one of those floor guys to play with Pollard, who's the ceiling guy. Right. Uh, wide receiver CeeDee Lamb is at number six, as we mentioned early round two. I think that's fair. Uh, Michael Gallup is at wide receiver 58. He's less than a half round behind Kenny Galladay on underdog ahead of Jacoby Myers, Jarvis Landry, Jahan Dotson, about one round ahead of Jalen Tolbert, who is at wide receiver 63. A total zero shares guy for me is Michael Gallup right now. Yeah, me too. Again, you know, January 2nd ACL tear didn't have surgery until early February. So if, if we use the nine month timetable, we usually see with ACLs. That puts Gallup out until early November. And you look at Dallas' schedule, they, they have a week nine bye, which lands on the first week of November. So I think week 10 is probably the the best guess at a return date for Michael Gallup. And then even then, you're probably not going to want to start him his first few games back. So yeah, he, he's been pretty much a, a void for me. Um, Lamb is, Lamb's a guy I want to draft. I have been drafting, but you're, you're not getting any discount on Lamb. You know, the the target boost we're projecting is, is priced into that ADP. So, you know, be, be prepared to take him early if you want him. Right. I think Tolbert is interesting in there. You know, the yep. the clear path is for him to get early season work while Gallup is still on his way back. Mm -hmm. But, you know, mm -hmm. we don't know what that early season work turns into. We don't know that Gallup makes it even close to 100 percent at any point this season. And if he doesn't, then Tolbert could be a top, you know, 36 potential guy 
for the year because I don't think yeah. either of us is excited about the upside on James Washington at this point. Yeah, again, I wish I liked the player more, the prospect more in Tolbert, but the opportunity is obviously awesome. Um, I still like him at, at a wide receiver 63 where he is over the last week. Now that is up um, you know, like four picks in underdog ADP over the previous week. So again, Tolbert does seem to be rising. Um, so he's, he's a good guy to get now if you want him, because I think he's going to get pricier throughout August as we, you know, see Gallup not in the field. I think Tolbert's you know, probably going to outperform James Washington in training camp. So I do think his, his price is going to get steeper. Yeah. And I like that at wide receiver 63, I don't think that he's priced beyond where he should be. Cause there's, you know, you're, he's not hurting you if you draft him at that point and he's not uh, doing right. anything for you, especially once we get to lineup setting leagues, there is a chance that he generates more buzz and starts climbing into the mid to high forties. Um, and mm-hmm. that will be getting a little bit pricey at that point. Agreed. Yep. Dalton Schultz, tight end six. That's okay, but he's almost two rounds ahead of TJ Hawkinson and underdog drafts two and a half rounds ahead of Dallas Goddard. Uh, he's closer to tight end five, George Kittle in ADP than he is to tight end seven, TJ Hawkinson. It's just too expensive for me. Yeah, me too. I just, I just see him in the same tier as Dallas Goddard and TJ Hawkinson. So unless I'm trying to build a Cowboy stack, I don't, I don't have a reason to, you know, reach two, three rounds ahead of Hawkinson or Goddard for Schultz. I agree. New York Giants, who got big changes in the front office and on the field. GM Dave Gettleman is gone. Head coach Joe Judge is gone, along with his staff. Brian Dabble is in the OC from the Bills. He actually has spent eight previous seasons as an offensive coordinator, two in Cleveland, one in Miami, one in Kansas City, and then the last four in Buffalo. Those last two Bills offenses were very good. Second and fifth in yards, second and third in points. But no other Dabble run offense finished better than 22nd in yards or better than 20th in points. His first six years as OC found teams that leaned heavily toward the run. But of course, the past two years, the Bills leaned toward the pass, further toward the pass last year than the season before. So I think ultimately, we don't know what he would rather do if everything was balanced talent-wise. We can at least Mm -hmm. see that he's a coach willing to lean toward where that offense has its strength. The OC under Dabble is going to be Mike Kafka. He's in his first year as an offensive coordinator, spent the past five years under Andy Reid in Kansas City. Four of those as the quarterback's coach. The past two of those also served as the passing game coordinator. So we'll see about his offensive philosophy, but we at least know that he has been taught well by working under Andy Reid. Yeah, I think this is going to end up being a pass-leading offense. You just look at the success Dable had going that direction over the past couple of years. You look at the hiring of Kafka. You know, comes from the Andy Reid coaching tree, and Reid has always been you know pass-leading offenses. Um, and the and the Bills under Dable, and you know the, the Chiefs under Reid and Kafka were also fast-paced offenses, which we like too. So I, I think this Giants offense is, is going to be fast-paced, and they're going to run more plays than they did the past few seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't be surprised by that. I want to make sure not to overrate the new coaching staff for what the Bills did the past two years because I don't think they have Josh Allen or Stephon Diggs on hand. But it looks to me, and we'll get more into it with the ADP section, that they're not being overrated by that facet so far. Well, and I think I, I just think it's a big upgrade over what was there last year as far as coaching goes, and that, that's the most important thing. Yes, everything about the Joe Judge regime from the start pretty much was like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> um, run pass, Dabble's eight offenses have averaged a 55-45 run, pass run split. Um, as I mentioned, you know, it, it differed quite a bit by those situations. That's certainly not where I'm projecting it. I'm just, just short of 60-40 in terms of my expectation this year. I went 60-40. 
Um, again, I, I look at the makeup of the staff and I look at the, the makeup of the offense. Um, and you have some intriguing guys at wide receiver. You have a running back in Saquon Barkley, who's, you know, just as good, if not better in the passing game than he is in the running game. So I, I just think this offense looks like one that should lean pass. Yeah, it, it should. And there's little behind uh, Saquon Barkley in that backfield to help that. So, yeah. Um, on to the quarterback, Daniel Jones, who has really not given us much to like as a passer so far. Of course, the Giants declined the fifth-year option on his rookie contract before this year started, but they also only brought in Tyrod Taylor. So, you know, the first is certainly not a Mark in Jones's favor, but it's also the team saying, well, we're not ready to pay you that much money for your fifth year. Let's see what you do this season, and then we'll all reevaluate. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a smart move. That's what the Giants should have done. So I don't consider a mark against Daniel Jones. I think he's safe as the starter, barring an injury, barring, you know, really bad play. Um, I, I like him as a fantasy target. You have – so first of all, I think he has some positive touchdown regression coming. Um, Jones has thrown a, a touchdown on just 2.6% of his passes over the past two seasons. That's fifth lowest among 41 qualifying quarterbacks. Now he had a 5.2% touchdown rate as a rookie back in 2019. So he, you know, he's already shown that he can be, you know, league average or slightly above league average there. So that's working in his favor. You have the rushing production working in, in his favor, uh, 26.3 rushing yards per game over the last three years. That's seventh best among quarterbacks. Again, you have the coaching upgrade. You have a healthy Saquon Barkley, which is going to help you, you know, have a full season of Kadarius Tony. You have Wondell Robinson arriving in round two of the draft. So there's some intriguing pass catchers here and the offensive line should be better. They spent the seventh overall pick of this year's draft on Evan Neal to play right tackle. Andrew Thomas emerged as one of the league's best left tackles last offseason. This could be a really strong tackle duo. Uh, they signed a couple interior O-linemen in free agency. So I'm not saying it's going to be a great O-line, but it, it should definitely be better last year. I think it can be a you know league average O-line at least. Yeah, the O-line should be better. There's at least room for it to be better. The pass catchers should be better. You know, you don't have to be... No, I don't think any of us is excited about any of these single facets, but there are reasons to believe that each of them could be better. And that includes the coaching staff that we already talked about. So when you put them all together, it's like, okay, this should be a better situation for Daniel Jones than what he's had the past couple of years. The rushing certainly helps. The TD rate, I agree, should rebound. Since 2002, which was when the league got to 32 teams, we've had We've had nine quarterbacks post multiple seasons of 3% touchdown rate or less. Only four guys, I think, have done so in consecutive seasons, as Daniel Jones did the past two years. Two of those guys improved the following year. One was Mark Bolger, who was out of the NFL shortly thereafter. Um, and then the other one was Sam Darnold last year with the Panthers. So we don't know about what his TD rate is going to do yet. So there's almost nowhere to go for Daniel Jones, butt up and just Tyrod Taylor behind him. So we should expect him to be in there. Now, as long as we're not overrating Daniel Jones's upside, I agree that I like him as a prospect. What he's done fantasy scoring wise so far, 15th in points per game as a rookie, but then 29th, 21st in points per game the past two years. I'm curious to see what this team does in the deep passing area, because Daniel Jones has had two really poor seasons in that area. And then the other season, he was the fourth best in the league in deep passing grade by PFF. Brian Dabble has said that he's encouraging him to take shots downfield, especially in practice so that Jones can kind of get comfy with taking some risks in those areas. And if that spills over into the season, that plus the rushing could be the ultimate path to some worthwhile upside for Daniel Jones. And I think that quarterback 15 finish 
in points per game you talked about in 2019 is you know a reasonable you know higher end outcome for Jones. I don't think he's going to finish top 10, but uh, he can finish you know around 15 with the rushing. And if he gets you know something like a league average touchdown rate, you know there you go. You're going to uh, you know top 15 quarterback, and he's going much later than that in drafts. Yeah, we'll slot him more in those drafts in the ADP section in a few minutes. Saquon Barkley in the backfield. This is what his career has looked like so far. RB1 overall as a rookie, set the NFL rookie record for receptions by a running back. Year two found him suffer a high ankle sprain in week three. He missed three games, had a a slower production stretch right after his return, picked back up late in that season. I believe he finished that season seventh in points per game at the position year three ACL tear in week two last year, of course, hit the season with clear signs that we should not expect anything close to Saquon Barkley in full. And we did not get that at any point last year. So that ultimately means we're all guessing to some degree what we get this year, but the signals on Barkley heading into this season are much better than they were last year. Well, and he was really just starting to get going too. It looked like coming off the ACL last year. And then he had that freak ankle injury where, you know, he, he stepped on a Cowboys defender's foot and rolled the ankle and, you know, he missed a few games and was really not the same from a production standpoint or a volume standpoint after that. But, you know, now he's another year removed from the ACL. We, we know guys tend to do better, you know, when they're in their, in their second year off the ACL. Saquon's still just 25 years old. And you know, we've talked about the coaching upgrade he's getting. We've heard a lot about how Dable's, you know, going to, I think use Barkley in more diverse ways, you know, getting him out wide, using him more in the passing game than, you know, the Jason Garrett regime did. Again, I think the O-line in front of him is better. And to me, the biggest argument in favor of Barkley is, you know, where else are these backfield touches going to go? It's Matt Breda, Antonio Williams, and Gary Brightwell behind Barkley and the depth chart. So it doesn't look like the Giants have any concerns about making Barkley a workhorse this season. That That's kind of what I expect. And he's not signed beyond this season, so they shouldn't have any concern about overworking him this year and preserving him for the future. So I agree. There should be lots of touches coming Saquon Barkley's way. And if we expect the offense to get any better, which we should, it's bound to help out the do-it-all running yeah. back. Yeah. And I mean, I get that the durability is, you know, the legit knock against Barkley, I guess, if there is one. But I mean, I think all running backs are injury risks. We know that. And if you look at our injury guide and our injury predictor, um, Saquon Barkley has a lower percent chance of injury this season than Christian McCaffrey, than Austin Eckler, than Derrick Henry, Dalvin Cook, Joe Mixon, Leonard Fournette, you know, all these other guys going in the first two rounds of fantasy drafts, according to our numbers, have a higher risk of getting hurt this season than Saquon does. Right. If you're just not taking Barkley because you can't trust him to stay healthy. I mean, Derrick Henry was a zero injury risk until the middle of last year when he broke his foot. So I think, you know, I think if you're so worried about Barkley for that aspect that you're not drafting him, what you're doing is underrating just the general injury risk for the position. Don't draft scared. That's right. On to the pass catchers where we've got an interesting group. Kadarius, Tony, Kenny Galladay, Wandale Robinson are really the three that are in focus for potential fantasy upside. I hit the draft season expecting Kadarius Tony to be a little bit overrated because there are a lot of people excited about what he flashed as a rookie. That hasn't been borne out, though, in drafting so far. So I'm interested going forward. Yeah, he, he has climbed in ADP over the past few months, but um, I, I still think he's in a good range, a valley range, a range where I'm still taking him. Um, you know, we only saw 
seven games from Tony last season when he played 50 plus percent of the Giants offensive snaps, but he averaged 7.4 targets in those seven games, a 21% target share. And he, he was awesome in yards per run 11th among 90 qualifying wide receivers with 50 plus targets in yards per route, uh, route run last year. One of just eight rookie wide receivers that averaged two plus yards per route run over the past five seasons. So, you know, it was, um, it was a limited sample from Tony last year, but it was encouraging. And, you know, he was a first round pick. Um, so, you know, I, I think it was a promising start to his career and he, he's still priced at a point where you're not, you're not paying for much of that upside. Yeah. And just to give a little bit more context to that yards per route run stack is, you know, it's easy to say a small sample, but these are the guys that were in front of him in that category, looking at wideouts with at least 40 targets last year, Cooper cup, Debo Samuel, Devonte Adams, Antonio Brown, AJ Brown, Deontay Hardy, which is the outlier in there. Um, probably because of at least a couple of those long touchdown plays. Anyway, Justin Jefferson, Jamar chase, Tyler Lockett, T Higgins, then Kadarius, Tony and Tyree Hill tied. So it's a pretty good group of pass catchers yeah. to be among. Yeah. And I, you know, if you're wondering why we're talking about yards per run often, it has been shown to be a pretty predictive stat, you know, more than something like yards per target. Um, Cause it's, it's weighing, you know, both how often you're getting targeted and we talk about, you know, targets being earned. So, you know, you want to award guys for that. Um, and then also, you know, what you're doing when you get targeted. Yeah. I mean, certainly no single stat is a silver bullet, but it's a, a worthwhile one for measuring what he could use is deeper targets this year. He was 98th in a dot among that 40 plus target wide receiver group last year, tied for eighth in yards after catch per reception. So we saw the run after catch ability that showed on his college tape would be nice to see him work a little bit further downfield. You know, that can play into what Dabble was talking about with Daniel Jones being able to throw downfield more, but another mark for Darius, Tony is that nobody else here is somebody that we're sure is going to do something this year. Cause Kenny Galladay had a very disappointing year last year. He also started out injured. You know, I'm sure that that hindered him along the way, but I think he's always been a guy that is not as good as maybe his um, fantasy high points might make you think. Yeah, I'm with you there. Um, you know, we were off Galladay at cost last year, and I think the biggest argument was just that he he never earned big target shares in Detroit. Um, I, I I do think there's some reason to be optimistic about some sort of a bounce back this coming season. As you mentioned, he dealt with a bunch of in- injuries last year. He had a hamstring injury in August that cost him a bunch of time. Then he dealt with hip, knee, and rib injuries during the season, but. You know, he, he was not very good as far as yards per route run, 74th among 90 qualifying wide receivers. He was 60th in PFF receiving grade. Um, now he's still just 28 years old. Um, he's making a, a bunch of money. I don't I don't know how this staff feels about him. That's that's the thing with Galladay and Tony is these are, you know, holdovers from the previous staff. So we don't know exactly how Dable and, and you know, co think they fit into the offense. So that'll be worth monitoring in August. But I do think Galladay, you look at the rest of the wide receiver core. I mean, he, he's a good bet to be a starter, to be on the field, you know, and and to get those targets. And they've talked about watching tape on these guys and letting them do what they've proven they can do. And I know Dabble specifically talked about Kenny Galladay winning contested passes. And that's something that didn't really happen last year. He didn't score any touchdowns, which is unlikely to happen again. So Galladay, an easy rebound candidate. And we'll talk about where he's going in drafts. Wandale Robinson's interesting because he's tiny, Um, But again, lands in this situation where there's no clear number one receiver. So targets are available. Roles are kind of up for grabs. And the Sterling Shepard Achilles tear last season opens the clear path to be the primary uh, slot guy. 
Yeah, Wondell Robinson's really interesting. First of all, because, again, he's the only wide receiver here that was picked by this new regime. And the Giants took him 43rd overall, the eighth wide receiver off the board, I think, earlier than expected because of that size you mentioned. You know, He's only 178 pounds. Robinson has the shortest arm length and the shortest wingspan of every single wide receiver in the mockdraftable.com database. I believe that goes back to 1999. So he, he he's a tiny dude, but the, the – College production was awesome. I mean, so Robinson actually, he was a high school running back and he played about half of his snaps in the backfield as a freshman at Nebraska, kind of went into more of a hybrid role the next season. He had 134 carries and 91 total catches across his two seasons at Nebraska. Then he transferred to Kentucky last year, had a massive season uh, primarily as a wide receiver, 104 catches, over 1,300 receiving yards. Um, He was top 11 in the country in both catches and receiving yards. He was top five among 251 qualifying wideouts in both yards per outrun and PFF receiving grades. So again, it's like, to me, it's like only the size is a knock against them. Great college production, got the draft capital, finds opportunity in New York. So um, he's a guy I'm interested in. It does seem like, you know, he's destined for the slot. He, he played there in the spring. I think, you know, his size sort of dictates that. So I think, I think you know, it's open the season with Shepard coming off the ACL. It doesn't sound like Darius Slayton is uh, Achilles. Yep. It doesn't sound like Slayton is, really part of this team's plans. You know, he's been a cut candidate. He's been rumored to be on the trading blocks. I think it's going to be um, Kenny Galladay and Kadarius Tone on the outside and Wendell Robinson in the slot. And you look at Dable's offenses in Buffalo, they were near the top of the league in use of both three and four wide receiver sets. And I think, you know, this, you look at the tight end group, which we'll get to, this looks like an offense that's going to get a lot of wide receivers on the field. So I think Robinson's going to get a lot of playing time right out of the gate. Yeah, so if we're expecting at least a decent pass lean, we've seen Wandale Robinson get plenty of uh, first-team reps in spring workouts, I'm sure, going forward in training camp and the weak tight end group that he uh, alluded to. Daniel Bellinger, as a rookie, was the first guy up to be the starter here. He's now on the pup with a quad injury. We've got Ricky Seals-Jones and Jordan Aikens behind him, neither of whom has done anything of real note in the NFL. So there should be lots of three wide receiver sets in this offense. There should be targets to go around and good for Wandale Robinson is that, you know, whether, no matter how much we like Kadarius Tony or Kenny Galladay, or, you know, see the upside to them, there's nobody in this offense that says I'm definitely the wide receiver one. I'm commanding the largest share of targets. So it's up for grabs. Any of these guys could get to that 18 to 20% range. Yeah, and I'm, you know, Robinson's size is definitely a concern. I think it's going to be a limiting factor in the NFL, but um, I think Dable is a smart enough coach to know how to use a guy that's like, and again, they they spent big draft capital to get him. I, th- I think they, they have a plan for him. And Robinson's size is also going to limit his um, draft cost because there are going to be plenty of skeptics. So on yep. to that draft cost section, ADP review. Daniel Jones is at QB 21. He's right behind Jameis Winston and Matt Ryan. I will take Daniel Jones over both of those guys pretty easily. Nice. Just ahead of Deshaun Watson, who, of course, is a unique case. Mac Jones, Zach Wilson. I also like Daniel Jones better than Mac Jones and Zach Wilson. Two and a half rounds ahead of Ryan Tannehill and about three rounds ahead of Jared Goff, four rounds ahead of Carson Wentz. So I think that's where I start to meet the, eh, I don't need Daniel Jones here. So he's still a consideration for me. He was one of my highest drafted players in the Superflex tournament on underdog. Overall, I think he's kind of fairly valued in drafts right now. Yeah, I like him. He's my favorite later round quarterback. Um, I just think, the coaching upgrade, 
the weaponry I'm, you know, intrigued by. I don't, I'm probably stopped short of saying excited about it, but I think it could be a good group of wide receivers. And, that, and then the rushing ability. I, I think Jones, among all those late round guys you mentioned, I guess, you know, besides Deshaun Watson, um, has the, has the highest ceiling, especially weekly because of that rushing ability. So especially talking best ball, I think Jones is the best bet to give you some of those, you know, spike weeks where he gives you 20, 25 points. Yeah, and let's skip ahead to the wide receiver ADPs because I think that is a key mark in favor of Daniel Jones late in drafts. It's not hard at all to stack him with Kadarius Toney or Kenny Galladay or both or Wandale Robinson along with either of those guys. Um, and even if you just want to make a tiny investment, you can take Daniel Jones late and Wandale Robinson late. So Kadarius Tony is at wide receiver 42. He is just behind Michael Thomas and Christian Kirk, just ahead of Brandon Ayuk, MVS, Traylon Burks. I think that's a fair range for him. I'm not taking Tony every time, but I'm certainly taking him some among that pool of players. Yeah, Tony's the guy I'm most excited about. Um, and I think wide receiver 42 is still a, a fair price tag. Ro- Ro- Honestly, Robinson's probably the best pure value. Um, so I think he's going to be on the field. He's wide receiver 82 in the 17th round and underdog. And Galladay is not a guy I'm excited about at all. Not really a guy I want to bet on, but he's wide receiver 56. And again, I think he's a safe bet to you know be a 90 plus percent snap rate player in this offense. And there's just not many guys in that range of ADP that are going to be on the field that often. So I, I honestly think Gallaudet is a pretty safe pick in that range. And then if he does bounce back and, you know, looks like the guy he was in Detroit the previous few seasons, then, you know, he, he could, he could still finish as a wide receiver three. He's going to be a pretty much purely best ball pick for me when I, yeah. Cause when I get to lineup setting leagues, I don't expect him to be somebody that I feel comfortable starting at any point. There's upside. I mean, if Tony gets hurt again, Kenny Galladay could, could certainly finish top 24 in targets. Uh, and that guy you're starting, even if he's inefficient. So I'm not opposed to him, but he might have to fall a little bit past ADP before I care about targeting him there. Looking at the guys around him though, he within a round ahead of Galladay is Tyler Boyd, Garrett Wilson, Tim Patrick, Christian Watson, and Rondale Moore behind him, Nicole Hardman, Michael Gallup, Jacoby Myers, Jarvis Landry. So to me, Galladay stands out quite a bit as a best ball pick there because I can get the best of him without having to worry about putting him into my lineup. Yeah, again, I, I like Galladay over most of those guys you mentioned going in that range. Yeah. And then, you know, Darius Slate and Sterling Shepard really not factors at this point. And no Giants tight end is really getting drafted, but I think that's where it should be right now. I was interested in Daniel Bellinger as a late tight end three on Daniel Jones teams before camp. But while he's on the pup, I'm just going to be not taking anything here and we'll wait and see what happens and how long he stays out. Yeah, not for me on underdog, you know, not enough rounds, no tight end premium scoring, maybe an FFPC best balls. If you're going deep enough, Ballinger's worth a shot, but he, he didn't look like a exciting prospect to me, you know, was, was a fourth round pick. Um, and again, I think this is going to be a wide receiver and Saquon Barkley centric offense. I don't think the tight ends are going to play, uh, uh, you know, much of a role in the passing game. Yeah, I agree with that. On to the Philadelphia Eagles where we got the same coach as last year, Jared, what do they look like on offense? It was a pretty promising start for this coaching staff. Head coach Nick Sirianni, OC Shane Steichen, the 2021 Eagles in their first season under those two guys, 12th in points, 14th in yards, 12th in yards per play. Um, They were fifth in situation neutral pace, which we like. They finished 14th in plays. But we we have to talk about the splits for this team as far as pass rate goes. Over the first six weeks of the season, the Eagles 10th in pass rate, 5th in situation neutral pass rate. From week seven, seven on, dead last in pass rate, 29th in neutral pass rate. They, they sunk from 63% pass over the first six weeks of the season 
to 42% pass from week seven on. So that's the big question here when projecting the Eagles is, you know, where do they land in there? I think, you know, they're not going to be as pass heavy as they were early. They're not going to be as run heavy as they were over the final two thirds of the season, but where exactly do they, do they land on that spectrum this season? I think they went a long way toward answering that question by trading for AJ Brown on the first night of the draft. And that's why I projected them at 55, 45, which is still among the more run leaning offenses in the league. And I think that's probably where they should be based on the quarterback, especially that they have, but I wouldn't expect anything close to the second half run pass split that they showed last year. Yeah. I'm at 55% pass right now. Um, And you, you look at, Sirianni's three seasons with the Colts as offensive coordinator. You look at Shane Steichen's one year as the Chargers OC. Both these guys, I I think they want to be pass-leaning offenses. Um, And they tried it last year. It didn't go great. I mean, this was a much better offense when they went run heavy. Um, so mm-hmm. I think I think it's like a push pull. These guys were like they want to be pass heavy. They went go out trade for AJ Brown, but I think they also know that you know under Jalen Hurts, um, you know they 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 can't push too far in that in that pass direction. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's good that they switched that in the middle of the year and were able to implement those differences because it certainly fit what they had last year. They had Jalen Hurts, who can run quite a bit, is probably slightly underrated as a passer because everybody thinks that he's like a running back who also throws on occasion right now. Um, but, you know, clearly stronger as a runner than he is as a passer. And they had a crappy wide receiver core last year. It was Devontae Smith. And then Jalen Rager let them down again. So it was basically just that. They traded away Zach Ertz right around the midseason point. So, you know, suddenly it was an offense that should keep the ball on the ground and not challenge things too much in the air. So glad to see that they they shifted things there. But I think it's pretty clear that they are trying to set themselves up to throw better this year. Because we all know that that's the more efficient way to move the ball at this point. You just can't have, you know... 45% passing and sustained success in the NFL. So on to Jalen hurts from a fantasy standpoint, QB 10 and fantasy points last year. That was his first full season as the starter after the Carson Wentz trade to Indy. Of course, the rushing was the big thing. He led all quarterbacks and carries in rushing yards in touchdowns with 10. You look at that. You think that number is definitely coming down, but it wasn't a totally fluky number. He led the position in red zone rushes, tied for 20th across all positions in red zone carries, tied for 11th in carries inside the 10, sixth most carries inside the five, and he only accounted for 36% of Philly's carries in that area. So there's room for Jalen Hurts to remain that involved near the goal line. His touchdown rate on those carries near the goal line was right in line with the other players around him in those rankings of carries inside the five. He also had a pretty long average depth of target passing last year, fourth longest in the league. Yeah, so going back to the rushing, he uh, Hertz had 9.3 expected rushing touchdowns. So he scored, you know, less than one more touchdown than expected. So it was really the role that, you know, provided that. So that, that's encouraging. I think, you know, he, he's going to score a bunch of rushing touchdowns again um, this season. I, I also think it's worth remembering, too, he had that week 12 high ankle sprain, Hertz did. Um, he was much more productive in fantasy before that. He averaged 22.6 points per game before the ankle sprain, just 17.5 after. So I think, he, you know, he was even better last year than the final numbers would suggest. And I do, I do think he's improving as a passer. I mean, you know, he's young. He's only, it's only his third year. He improved, he improved everything last year. Completion rate, yards per attempt, adjusted completion rate, adjusted yards per attempt, all improved from year one to year two. Hertz was uh, 14th among 31 qualifiers in PFF passing grade last year. So he's already, I think, you know, a league average passer and there's room for him to get better. I think even if he doesn't get better, the passing numbers are going to improve when you add someone like AJ Brown to the mix. So, Man, I think um, 
I think Hurts has a chance to finish quarterback one. Like I, I think there are, you know, three or four guys I'd bet over him to do that. But I think he he's one of the guys that could finish quarterback one. You talk about the rushing and then the, the passing upside he has with Brown added to the mix. I agree. I would not bet on him leading the position in scoring, but if he is at the end of the year, I'm not going to be like, where did that come from? It's like Kyler Murray a couple of years ago. He has that same kind of path where Kyler Murray did it with 11 rushing scores. Plus it was like a 4.6% passing touchdown rate. Yep. For sure. On to running back where Miles Sanders, we've talked about plenty and I want to start with kind of the downside on Miles Sanders, 35th in carries per game last year, 29th in opportunities per game, did leave a couple games early, limited in a couple others. But if you look at even just the nine games, he played more than a third of the snaps. He averaged 12.8 carries, 3.2 targets. So those are not big numbers. He had a 43.6% share of team rushing attempts over that span, 10.2% of team targets, you know, again, that helps to kind of put some context on a team that was not throwing the ball a whole lot over the second half of the season. And if you take out the Jalen Hurts carries, then when Miles Sanders was healthy, he was getting 63.2% of Eagles carries by anybody other than the quarterback. His efficiency metrics have climbed, so he has been a good player when he's gotten the ball, and it seems like an improving player when he's gotten the ball. Yeah, and Sanders missed a bunch of time with a couple different injuries last year. He had he had ankle injuries, uh, broke his hand later in the season, and you know the majority of his healthy games came early in the season when the Eagles were pass heavy. Um, you know his his fantasy points per game and his expected fantasy points per game both climbed pretty considerably. You know in his final three or four games when the Eagles were going run heavy. Um, you know my my concern with Sanders, the more I've dug into the Eagles, is just that. He's going to he's going to lead the backfield in total touches, but is he going to get the money touches we want in fantasy which come in the passing game and near the goal line because you know last year Sanders 30 targets in 10 games. Kenneth Gainwell actually saw 31 targets in those 10 games and Gainwell missed one of those 10 games that Sanders played in. So I think I think Gainwell might out-target Sanders this season. And then you look at carries inside the 5-yard line last year, Miles Sanders had just 6 of them. Jalen Hurts had 13. Boston Scott had 12. Jordan Howard had eight. Now Howard's gone, so those are available. But you know the Eagles did did not really want to use Sanders near the goal line. So that's my concern. Like he's going to get you know 200, 250 touches, but if he's not going to get the majority of the pass catching work, if he's not going to get the goal line carries, you know that might kind of be that might be empty touches for for fantasy football. Yeah, I agree. I started out draft season excited about him at cost, and I'm still taking him in best ball at cost. But I think he's less interesting. Now, I I don't want to say I don't want to give too much downside because I do think that he still makes plenty of sense at cost because maybe he just gets the ball more than we're expecting. Maybe Kenneth Gainwell is not ready to be a significant player. You know, it's worth remembering that Kenneth Gainwell was a fifth round pick uh, and I don't know, a limited player last year. So I guess kind of spinning it forward a little bit to the other players in the backfield. I love the talent on Gainwell. I was a big fan of him as a prospect before the Eagles drafted him. I did not love how long he lasted in that draft. I loved the early opportunities he got last year in a backfield that had a healthy Miles Sanders. I hate that once Miles Sanders went down the first time, Boston Scott and Jordan Howard jumped ahead of him. So I'm going to be very interested to see what the Eagles say and do with Miles Sanders versus Kenneth Gainwell in terms of roles this summer, both in training camp reports and in the preseason games. Yeah, I think the Eagles view Gainwell as a change of pace pass catching back and not like a, you know, typical pure backup runner behind Miles Sanders. Um, so that, I think that limits the fantasy upside here. I, I 
do think there's some pass catching upside to Gainwell though. Um, you know, he, he, he was awesome in that facet at Memphis, uh, 51 catches for 610 yards and three touchdowns as a you know redshirt freshman at Memphis in 2019. He sat out the 2022 season there for COVID concerns. And then, you know, you look at what he did last year as a rookie, uh, 33 catches on 50 targets, 253 yards, um, all of those marks led Eagles running backs and league wide. He was 12th in PFF receiving grade 17th in yards per outrun among 49 qualifying running backs. So he, he, he looks like a strong pass catcher. I'm with you. I don't like that. He dropped so far in the NFL draft, but that that's less of a concern to me after you see what he did as a rookie last year. But again, I, I don't think there's a huge ceiling here because I think even if, if Sanders goes down, then you're going to see, like we saw last year, you know, Boston Scott's going to step into a bigger role and, and Gainwell, Gainwell's volume is not going to climb a whole lot. One more mark in his favor, though. His name is Kenny Gainwell. I mean, that's what you name a running back in a movie or a video game. It's just he's made <laughs> to play running back. Yeah, for sure. Boston Scott, it cannot be forgotten about here because he's he stepped into that elevated role last year after Miles Sanders went down. Uh, Jordan Howard also did, and they were kind of splitting work. The team then re-signed Boston Scott, has not done so with Jordan Howard. So he's around, and it was more than just last season where he factored in near the goal line. For his career, which is three years with the Eagles so far, 5.7% touchdown rate, which is well above the average number for the position. So the team likes him near the goal line. Boston Scott has paid them back near the goal line. He's probably the third running back if they're all healthy, but there's upside to him either on a per game basis or handcuff. I think he's just a handcuff. I think if, you know, I think, you know, keep him on your waiver watch list. And if Sanders goes down, Scott's going to be worth an ad. But if if you look at the 10 games that Sanders was healthy for last season, Scott had 21 total carries and seven total targets in those 10 games. Um, You know, maybe there's a bit more to go around with Jordan Howard gone this season, but I don't think he's going to be a fantasy factor. If Sanders is healthy, if Sanders gets hurt, then again, I think Scott is more likely to, you know, take over that Sanders work than, than uh, Kenny Gainwell is. I'm going to be very curious to see what coaches coaches are saying about Gainwell in the preseason, though, because there's certainly room for Gainwell to be the number two ball carrier there and to take over the bulk of everything if Miles Sanders goes down. Yep. On to the pass catchers, which centers on A.J. Brown. And I mean, we all love A.J. Brown as a player. He's been wildly efficient so far in his NFL career, but... I think that there's a little bit of overlooking reality in terms of what that has been in fantasy production, 25th, fifth and 27th in half PPR points per game through his three seasons, 32nd, seventh and 29th in PPR points per game. Uh, He has been 18th in PPR points per game since he entered the league among the 117 receivers who have seen at least 90 targets over that span. Brown ranks fifth in yards per target, fourth in that group in PPR points per target, eighth in touchdown rate. So he's been an excellent per touch player. Not sure his new landing spot though, helps that level of touches that has been dragging down his overall scoring. Yeah. Volume's been a problem, you know, playing on the run heavy Titans then, you know, Injuries have also been a problem for AJ Brown. He missed two games in 2020 with a bone bruise to his knee. He actually had surgery the following offseason on both of his knees. Then last year he missed four games with a hamstring and chest injury. So um, that, that's been an issue. You're not going to you know, bet on injuries going forward. So I don't want to really use that as a knock against him. But you know, to me, the concern still when just looking at Brown, where he's going in drafts is, again, I, I don't think this is going to be a super pass-heavy Eagles offense. I definitely expect them to pass more than they did last year and especially over the final two thirds of the season, but you know, maybe a, a, a mid pack finish as far as pass attempts go for the Eagles. And then you just have tough target competition. I mean, Devonta Smith, first round pick last year coming off a nice rookie season. He's 
you know, not going away. Dallas Goddard, uh, I think is in for another big role this season as, you know, really to me, one of the, you know, five or six best pass catching tight ends in the NFL. So I just don't think you're going to get, you know, 28% target share AJ Brown in this offense. And I, I think that's almost what he would have to be to, you know, pay off his, his ADP right now. I agree. Unless this team just goes wildly pass leaning and by wildly, I mean, well beyond what we're anticipating, not like historic yeah. levels, but they'd have to be 60 plus percent for him to get enough targets to be a wide receiver one um, without getting that kind of dominant target share. So I just don't, you know, we'll talk about ADP more in a minute, but I don't think it, it lines up with reality here. And then Devonte Smith, Dallas Goddard, we've talked about Dallas Goddard plenty. I don't think there's anything else we need to lay out with him here right now. Devonte Smith, as you said, had an excellent rookie year. Unfortunately, the team then traded big stuff for AJ Brown and paid him like a wide receiver one. And not only that, you know, as we're all probably well aware of, he's best buddies with the quarterback. So whereas in many cases you might be like, well, yeah, but it's a new wide receiver. It has to get used to the quarterback. These guys know each other very well. So very much like Devonte Smith, the player and the long-term outlook, but you know, concern for what is really possible for him this season. Yeah. I think AJ Brown's probably a better player than Devonte Smith. And I think AJ Brown is definitely the favorite to, to lead these wide receivers in targets. But again, you know, Smith, Smith had an encouraging rookie season he drew 104 targets on a you know pass uh you know or sorry run heavy offense uh, smith led the eagles in targets 21 percent target share so that's encouraging he was 25th in pff receiving grade among 90 qualifying wideouts 30th in yards per route run those were both top four marks among rookies um i mean with smith you have to hope that because he's probably going to lose target share from that 21 percent but you have to hope the increased pass volume for the eagles kind of helps offset that um so you know I, the ceiling is definitely capped but i think he could still give you a wide receiver three level production on to the adp review we've got jalen hurts a qb6 it's he's been boosted in that area certainly since aj brown's arrival i think it's a fair spot it's a little bit high now though for him to be a specific target player for me at yep. the position to me he he's just become that sixth elite quarterback that i want to get my hands on like you know now it's just an extra guy added to that mix where if i you know, miss out on Kyla Murray, who's going four picks um, before Jalen Hurts. You have Lamar Jackson and Mahomes going around before Jalen Hurts. Like, if I miss out on those guys, then, you know, Hurts is there as sort of the, the final fallback after. And I, honestly, I, I like – I'd rather draft Jalen Hurts around after Mahomes. Um, I'd probably even rather draft Hurts around and a half after Justin Herbert. I think, you know, to me, to me, Hurts, Kyler, and Lamar are my three favorites among those elite quarterbacks. He's the one that I care least about stacking with a pass catcher yes. too, because I'm not paying to get AJ Brown. Uh, I don't need to get Devonte Smith, you know, having missed out on AJ Brown. Cause I don't think that Devonte Smith's going to be the breakthrough guy, Dallas Goddard. I definitely like stacking with Jalen hurts, but I'm okay if I have Jalen Hurts and I don't wind up with Dallas Goddard because the ultimate ceiling for Jalen hurts is that he has a huge rushing year and also a very good passing year. Yeah, definitely fair. Although, you know, most of my teams end up with Dallas Goddard. So if I, I draft Hurts, he's usually stacked. That's right. On to running back, Miles Sanders is at RB26. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Gainwell is at RB50. Boston Scott is at RB83. I mean, among those guys, Boston Scott is definitely the best best ball value. He's at an, a level where he's not always getting drafted. And I think if you look at the other guys around him, he has the clear appeal that he gains touches if either Sanders or Gainwell goes down and he could just be in the goal line mix, even when everybody's healthy. So like you, you could steal a starting week or two from Boston Scott, even without those other guys getting hurt. 
Yeah, and he's a good way to differentiate your team because he's not getting drafted in a lot of these underdog drafts. Um, I, I, you know, I can't say he's a top target for me, but I think he's he's no. fine if you want to take him with your last pick. I think Sanders is fine at RB twenty six. Again, I have concerns about the ceiling, but I also think you know he's going to get two hundred or so carries. You know, he's going to get a, a few targets per game, so he, he's he's not going to kill you at that cost. I don't know if he has the type of ceiling you want for these best ball tournaments, but and then, uh, you know, Kenny Gainwell. Definitely prefer him in full PPR setups like uh, FFPC because I think you know that's where he's going to drive most of his values in the passing game. Yeah, I'm not really targeting either of these guys at this point. I'm fine with both of them where they're going, especially for best ball purposes, because I think this could be a somewhat unpredictable backfield. It's the middle of round seven for Miles Sanders right now. He's about a half round behind Antonio Gibson. Um, I would prefer Gibson at those relative prices over Sanders. A uh, full round behind AJ Dillon and Elijah Mitchell, about a round ahead of Clyde Edwards Elaire. And he's my favorite value among those guys that I just named. I like it. By the way, if you haven't played on underdog yet, then you can go there, use the promo code sharks and get a deposit match up to hundred bucks, hundred percent deposit match. So you go put in whatever money you want. They'll double it instantly. What's in there. So lots of free drafts available. If you go there, use the promo code sharks wide receiver, AJ Brown at wide receiver 11, Devonte Smith at wide receiver 35. You know, like I said, I like AJ Brown, but at wide receiver 11, beginning around three, he's just not really a consideration for me. I mean, yeah. you have to, you have to weigh him against guys like Mike Evans, T Higgins, Tyree kill and Keenan Allen. And then even if you don't want to take wide receiver right there, there are attractive options in rounds four and five as well. Yeah. I don't want to be completely out on AJ Brown just because he's a very good player. And we're talking about a format that can favor just, you know, a couple of spike weeks at the very end of the year. But especially if we get to a best ball tournament that doesn't have those one week playoffs at the end, AJ Brown's even less in the mix for me. Yeah. I like both these players you know, as talents, AJ Brown, Devonta Smith. They're both a handful of spots higher in ADP than they are in our rankings. So they're not primary targets for me. I'm with you. I'm, I'm, sort of forcing myself to get some AJ Brown when he gets to, you know, three, three or three, four, you know, a few spots past ADP, just so I have some exposure. Cause he, you know, I do think he's a great player. And if things break, right. You know, if he gets, honestly, if he gets a Devonta Smith injury, like, you know, he, he could get that 28% target share we talked about. So they're past it for him to get there. And, and again, I think he's an elite talent, um, but I, I don't, I don't see the volume playing out, you know, as, as a baseline projection for him to him to pay off that uh, wide receiver 11 ADP. I do think that if you get A.J. Brown, you should probably try to get Jalen Hurts because even though I don't think Jalen Hurts needs to bring a receiver with him to be a strong fantasy play this year, I think if A.J. Brown yeah. meets his price or exceeds his price, uh, it should be a magical year for Jalen Hurts because he's going to be able to run yes. the ball. And if he's also adding big A.J. Brown weeks, then it's going to be a huge season. Totally agree. Devontae Smith's fine. He's just behind Adam Thielen, Elijah Moore, Russell Gage. He's ahead of DeAndre Hopkins, Drake London, Hunter Renfro, Alan Lazard. You know, in the mix. Also, I'm not scared that I'm missing out on something big if I just don't happen to land him there. Yeah, I'm with you. He's just fine. Um, again, I would I'd much rather draft Dallas Goddard as the you know pass catcher from the Eagles. Quez Watkins at wide receiver 103. If you have Jalen Hurts on your best ball roster, I think Quez Watkins is a nice differentiating last round pick. I need more than uh, 18 rounds if we get an, an underdog to, to draft Quez Watkins. 
That's what makes him such a differentiator because old guys like Jared don't want to go for that. Uh, Dallas Goddard, tight end eight. I mean, we talk about him pretty much every time that ADP comes up. He's around behind tight end seven, TJ Hawkinson. He's less than around ahead of the next two guys, Dawson Knox, Zach Ertz. Basically, I think, Jared, the only way to sum it up at this point is if you are drafting with a DraftSharks.com draft war room, it is probably going to tell you at some point to draft Dallas Goddard. Right. And it's like, like 10 on eight isn't even insane. I mean, again, I, I like him straight up over Hawkinson and Schultz, but it's the fact that he's going, you know, basically around behind Hawkinson and like two rounds behind Dalton Schultz or two and a half rounds behind Dalton Schultz. Like I, I don't, I don't understand that price gap. And I think, you know, Goddard's easily the best value among those three. I agree. The Washington commanders are our final team in this division. Nothing new on the coaching front, even though it's a new thing on the team name front. This will be the third year of Ron Rivera as the head coach, third year of Scott Turner as the OC. The overall numbers look at make it look like this team leaned pass in 2020 um, and then leaned run last year, but their neutral pass rate finished exactly the same, 16th in both seasons. Different quarterback starter for the third straight year. We had Dwayne Haskins opening the season in 2020. We had Ryan Fitzpatrick as the week one starter last year. He got hurt in that game, was quickly replaced by Taylor Heineke for the rest of the year. Now it's Carson Wentz. I would expect this offense to stay in that mid-pack area in terms of pass-run split. I've got it projected at 58-42. I'm right with you, 58-42. Um I would assume this coaching staff sees Wentz as an upgrade over what they had last year. I'm, you know, I'm not sure it is. We can get into that. Um, but they think he's an upgrade, and they you know, spent a first-round pick on a wide receiver. They gave Terry McLaurin a big deal. So you know, they, they gave Curtis Samuel a big deal last offseason. So they've really invested in the wide receiver core. So I do think they, they want to at least throw more than they did last year. I, I think they'll be you know, middle of the pack in terms of pass rate. They clearly believe that it's an upgrade, but even if you listen to the explanation, Ron Rivera's like, we think Carson Wentz will do a better job of sustaining drives. It's not like, oh, we got Carson who has been a star in this league and we think he can elevate this offense. They're like, seriously, guys, we have no idea what to do at quarterback. So we're going to take a guy who at least at some point was good and we'll hope he can be good again. Overall, Wentz was solid statistically last year. He tailed off late QB 20 in fantasy points from week 10 on. That's the final eight games of the Colts season. 28% of his points in that span, though, came in the Week 12 game against Tampa Bay. So even then, he was scoring below that QB 20 level in general. He does like to throw downfield, however, Jared. Maybe that lines him up well with the wide receiver core that that he's got in Washington. Yeah, I think that's the argument in favor of Wentz, if there is one. I do think it's a nice group of weapons with Dotson joining Terry McLaurin and and Curtis Samuel. We've got a couple, you know, capable pass catching backs too. And then, you know, Wentz does give you some rushing production. He has 215 plus rushing yards in three straight seasons now. Um, you know, that, that's about the best I can say for the guy though. Cause it really, you look at the you know PFF passing grade, uh, just a completion rate last year, really even back in 2020, you know, he, he's been near the bottom of the league and that stuff. So he just, he just hasn't been a good quarterback the past couple seasons. Yeah. No reason to expect him to suddenly return to being a good quarterback. I think it's, we're going to get more of what we got in Indy last year. Um, he did rank top 10 in average depth of target three of the past five years, two seasons among the top five over that span. And Taylor Heineke was eighth in that category last year. So it seems like a position where like a a situation where they should have him operating downfield. We'll get more into the guys he would be throwing to, but running back, we've got Antonio Gibson who ranks seventh in carries and eighth in total opportunities over the past two seasons. That's the two years since he entered the league. Even within that though, Jared Gibson lost four carries per game last year, 
versus the previous years. Targets per game up a tiny bit, but he got a big boost in that area because J.D. McKissick went down in Week 12. Yeah, I've struggled with Gibson all offseason, kind of how to value him. I mean, it has not been a good offseason for him when you look at Washington, you know, bringing J.D. McKissick back, and then they spend a third-round pick on Brian Robinson. Um, so it seems like they want to lighten Gibson's load. Um, but I, I, I just still like this player. I mean, I think you, you could – Gibson's uh, 2021, you have to remember that he played through a stress fracture in his shin from week four on. Like, I, I remember, you know, Dr. Chow talking about how, you know, eventually this is going to shut him down for the season at some point. It's not going to get better. Um, he ended up making it through the season, but I think that obviously impacted his play. So you look at Gibson's advanced metrics last year, you know, PFF rushing grade, elusive rating, yards per outrun. They're, they're not very impressive, but again, I think you have to factor in the stress fracture. You go back to Gibson's rookie season in 2020, fifth in PFF rushing grade, 17th in elusive rating, 13th in yards per outrun. So he, he was really efficient then. I think he can get back to that player, but the question is just how much volume is he going to get? Um, because, you know, that, that's what matters more than anything else in fantasy football. Yeah. Uh, fourth in the league in total opportunities last year, but just 13th and dominator rating 16th among running backs in red zone snap share had the stress fracture that you mentioned also had a calf injury in week six and a toe injury in December that might've still been a lingering issue from his December, 2020 toe injury. So I think all of that probably wraps into why the team doesn't want him to get too much, too many touches. And you mentioned it's been a negative off season because Washington has showed us with its actions that they don't want him to get the ball too much. They first kept JD McKissick from leaving for Buffalo by, you know, ponying up and paying what the bills offered him in free agency. Then they drafted Brian Robinson in round three. And, you know, you can say what you want about Brian Robinson, but Ron Rivera has already linked that linked to the Brian Robinson, Antonio Gibson pairing to his old D'Angelo Williams, Jonathan Stewart pairing in Carolina. We'll see what that means numbers wise, but that was a tandem of running backs that kept either guy from really being, you know, a workhorse level runner in that Carolina offense. Yeah. Stewart and Williams basically split work down the middle under Rivera. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. Um, you know, the, the, the McKissick thing, he's going to continue playing on passing downs. Um, you know, Gibson, 4.4 targets per game in the five games McKissick missed last season, just 2.7 targets per game in the 11 games with McKissick. And, I mean, the funny thing about Gibson is he entered the league as a guy we thought was going to be, you know, primary, you know, pass catching back just based on his profile from Memphis, and he sort of turned in to the opposite. So he Gibson's a very tough evaluation for me, but, you know, we'll get to his ADP. Uh, he's going late enough in drafts where he, he is he is tempting. Yeah, his cost definitely is key now. J.D. McKissick, target share was down last year, 17.5% the year before to 14.4% in his healthy games last year, which is still a strong level. He was seventh among running backs in targets per game. As I mentioned, Washington paid to keep him, but the challenge for McKissick now, probably the biggest challenge, I mean, there are always multiple, but the biggest challenge is probably the enhancements at wide receiver where Washington drafted Jahan Dotson in round one. They get Curtis Samuel healthy after he was basically out for the entire season last year. So there should be fewer targets going to Washington running backs this year. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, McKissick was RB 31 in PPR points per game last season, but he was just 43rd in expected PPR points per game. So, you know, he overachieved versus the volume he got. I think that volume could decline this season. He He's fine if you want to add him, you know, later in PPR leagues, right? but you know, there's, there's really not much of a ceiling to McKissick. He's not going to take on a much bigger role if Gibson goes down. 
he's basically Naheem Hines, but with less carry upside because even if Gibson went down, Washington would have Brian Robinson yeah. as the primary ball carrier. Agreed. Now, Brian Robinson, the question on him is, was he just blocked by, you know, otherworldly talent in the Alabama backfield before last year, or is he not a good enough player to command touches in a college backfield? And thus we have to worry about that in the NFL. You know, we'll see what the answer there is, but when he finally did get the opportunity last year, he handled 61.9% of Alabama's running back carries, 62 and a half percent of running back catches. So they gave him the ball a lot, both as a runner and a receiver. And it was still an Alabama team that went to the national title game. So it's not like we're talking about a bad year for Alabama. Then Robinson, he is a little bit bigger than Gibson. He notched an 85th percentile speed score in pre-draft testing, uh, was drafted in round three, of course. So Washington at least likes him to some degree. Yeah. I lean more towards Robinson not getting on the field just because, you know, there was so much talent ahead of him at Alabama. Like you said, he had a nice uh, 2021 season. Robinson 13th in PFF rushing grade among 170 qualifiers last year. And he got the draft capital. I mean, third round, sixth running back off the board. Um, so, you know, Washington, you know, spent up for this guy. Um, I, I he, Robinson's one of my favorite late round targets in fantasy drafts right now. Um, I think at minimum you're getting the handcuff to Antonio Gibson. Again, I don't think J.D. McKissick is going to see much of an increase in rushing volume if Gibson goes down. I think Robinson's going to get the majority of that. And then I, I think there's a chance Robinson's a standalone option. You're like maybe Probably not in lineup setting leagues, but I think he can give you starting level weeks in best ball if this backfield does look more like those Panthers days under Rivera where it's you know closer to a 50-50 split between Gibson and Robinson. Um, the Athletics, Ben Standing mentioned that you know he thinks Robinson might be this team's goal line back. You know, Gibson struggled with ball security throughout the past couple seasons. So, you know, I, there's a lot of paths, I think, for Robinson to pay off uh, for where he's going in drafts right now. I agree with all that. You said handcuffed. Does that mean that you would put Robinson on the same roster with Gibson? Or are you just saying there's upside to him if and when Gibson goes down? Well, I, I definitely don't like drafting handcuffs in these best ball tournaments. So I would I, I would not draft Gibson and Robinson together on an underdog or FFPC best ball tournament team. But I do like getting one of those two guys. And I think if you get to, you know, more contained 12 team leagues, you, you can draft both of them, especially at the prices they're going. Yeah. I, I still think it's not optimal to pair them together, even on, you know, a 12 team lineup setting roster, but you can do stuff like that in a 12 team league yep. and not really be killed by it. Yep. Pass catchers, Terry McLaurin leads the way yards per catch rebounded last year, yards per target and yards per route run have dipped for two straight years. So we saw his average depth of target rebound last season went from high 14.4, I believe his rookie season down below 10 yards. The second year that bounced back up to 13.9 last year. So when you look at that rebounding and yet the yards per route run continuing downward, blame that on inefficient quarterback play. So is Carson Wentz the solution to that? Probably not. Does Carson Wentz help that some versus Taylor Heineke? There's at least a chance that he does. There's a chance. I, I like the downfield passing aspect with Wentz for McLaurin. I think, you know, that mesh as well. I, I, I don't like McLaurin. His his best PFF receiving grade and yards per route run mark came as a rookie. Um, you don't love seeing that. Now, last year he was still 21st in PFF receiving grade, 26th in yards per route run among 90 qualifiers. So they were still solid marks. Um, I, I don't love that. He hasn't really progressed since his rookie season, I guess. 
Um, and I do think he he's also probably probably facing his toughest target competition um, since he's been with Washington after, uh, you know, Washington spent that mid first round pick on Jahan Dotson. I think Curtis Samuel uh, should be healthy this season after, you know, lost 2021. So, you know, 23.6% target share for McLaurin last year. I think, you know, that that's a number he might have trouble repeating this season. Yeah, we could be looking at like an Amari Cooper level number one wide receiver where he leads the team in target share, but he's not truly uh, a target share leader. Yeah. Uh, Curtis Samuel basically missed all of last year with that groin injury. That, of course, followed him signing a three-year deal at an $11.5 million average with Washington. Scott Turner said after they signed him then that Samuel was, quote, just scratching the service on what he's capable of. Now, Samuel, of course, played under Turner and Ron Rivera in Carolina, so they know better than most what he might be capable of. If we look at the average target depths for Curtis Samuel in Carolina, we see, you know, a pretty big range of what's possible. He went from 9.4 as a rookie to 12.2, 14.8, That last year was after Turner and Rivera were gone, and that was also the year in which he spent the most time in the slot. So, I look at him and I think that he's most likely settling in the slot between McLaurin and Jahan Dotson this year. But there's also just the chance that these guys move all those wide receivers around because they view Curtis Samuel as just as much of an outside threat as an inside threat. Yeah, I think Samuel's best in the slot and I think he's best as a short range target, get the ball in his hands, let him do stuff after the catch. Um, So I think if you want to maximize Samuel's fantasy production, I think that's where you want to see him. I am curious to see, how he fits in alongside Jahan Dotson, who you was know, only 178 pounds. Dotson played plenty outside the numbers in college. Maybe he can make it work in the NFL, but that, that's really small to be you know playing primarily outside in the NFL. So I'm curious to see how, how all these guys fit. I mean, obviously Dotson's arrivals is not good news for Curtis Samuel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that certainly doesn't help the outlook, but obviously having missed all of last year, you know, we don't really have a, a level of expectation set. Um, Jahan Dotson, a very nice college career. We don't like that. He was a four-year college player, but you know, it's not like that's a crusher. And then he was a middle of round one draft pick. So clearly Washington's quite a big fan and they could have stayed earlier in that draft and taken another running back or another wide receiver. I mean, yeah. And they drafted Jahan Dotson even ahead of uh, Traylon Burks at 16th overall. Um, I think, I think Dotson's a fine prospect. I think he's a pretty high floor prospect. I don't see a high ceiling on him. Um, I guess largely because of the size. Again, he's five foot 11, 178 pounds, 18th percentile arm length, 22nd percentile wingspan. He's just, he's just small. Um, I, I do think he he's, you know, one of the more NFL ready prospects, especially near the top of this board. Um, you know, good route runner, maybe the best hands in this draft class. So I think he's ready to come in and contribute right away has the opportunity to do that. I think that the draft capital says Washington wants him to do that. So there were, 13 wide receivers picked between 11th and 21st overall over the last 10 years. So, you know, the five pick sandwiching where Dotson went at 16th overall, 10 of those 13 wide receivers averaged five plus targets per game as a rookie. Uh, Six of the 13 averaged seven plus targets per game as a rookie. So, you know, the draft capital says Dotson's going to play a pretty big role right out of the gate. Um, I'm, I'm surprised he's not going higher in fantasy drafts right now. The hands and downfield ability to are going to they they set him up for potential splash plays and buzz in camp and preseason. So there's a chance that he does some things, has a big preseason game that pushes him up the ADP board. We'll talk about where he is in drafts. I don't think that I don't think he's been overpriced just yet. Yep, agreed. 
Logan Thomas, before we wrap up the pass catcher section, coming off a of December ACL, Terry, was not an exciting prospect just in terms of talent before that. So, I mean, I'm total wait and see on Logan Thomas at this point because I'm not scared that I'm missing out on anything, anything special if I don't draft him. Well, yeah, it was it was ACL, MCL, lateral, and medial meniscus for Logan Thomas, and it, the injury was on December 5th. Um, so yeah, he even said like he, his timeline is putting him back. He said, "quote somewhere around week four. Um, and yeah, you know even that might be optimistic. So I think you're going to see Thomas start the season on the pup list, which you know will knock him out for those first four games of the season. We'll we'll see beyond that, but I don't think he's a very high upside player even when he does get back to 100. percent Yeah, he's been a totally volume driven player to this point. So just there's no reason to take the chance on him, and he has slid down draft boards. To be fair, so getting into that ADP section, we've got Carson Wentz at QB 28. And really, regardless of everything else, that is the biggest argument in favor of drafting him because QB 28, all he has to do is something (laughs) from that level. And he's a strong value. I mean, he's not going to be the difference between you winning and losing a league, but he might be all things considered the best quarterback value because of that extremely (laughs) low price for best ball purposes. Well, he's the cheapest locked in starter other than Davis Mills, who's, you know, going one spot and like four picks behind him in ADP. And, and that, that's worth something in best ball, like just getting quarterback starts. Um, so I don't mind once if, you know, if you take Josh Allen in the third round and you just take once as your second quarterback, or if you're taking, you know, three late quarterbacks, make him your third quarterback. And, you know, I, I do think barring injury, you're going to get 17 games out of, out of once this year. Yeah. And just looking at his annual points per game finishes in fantasy, starting with last year, 18th, 22nd, 14th, 14th, 3rd, 27th. So that was his rookie year back in Philly. Otherwise, he has way outperformed at QB 28 starting point. Now, you know, again, I think he's more like that QB 18 where there might be a couple of spike weeks and overall he's not going to be a true difference maker. But from QB 28, he's like, if you're getting later in your draft and you're like, do I need to take a quarterback now? Because I also really want this guy. Carson Wentz is the reason you can say, all right, I'll take that other guy and wait on a quarterback because nobody likes Carson Wentz right now. Yeah, quarterback 22 in our rankings. So, you know, there, there is some value there. And the other reason that it's fairly easy to take Carson Wentz in these is the wide receiver ADP. Terry McLaurin is at wide receiver 19, which is fair. And if you have McLaurin, it certainly makes Wentz a little bit more intra- attractive down in that range. But Jahan Dotson is wide receiver 62. Curtis Samuel is wide receiver 79. So you can take late, late stacks on Wentz and either or both of those wideouts and just get nothing but upside. Yeah, Dotson's my favorite target here. Again, um, I do think he's NFL ready. You know, maybe he's never going to be you know, a dominant number one receiver in the NFL, but I think he can contribute this season. And you look at, again, the, the draft capital Washington spent on him, uh, you know, makes him a, a good bet to be on the field and to, to see good volume, a better volume than the wide receiver 62 price tag he's going to get right now. Running backs, uh, Antonio Gibson started out much higher. He was early in draft season. It seemed like he was a little bit undervalued. And that's maybe because I wasn't factoring in the chance that Washington would do these things to keep him from maximizing his touch count going forward. Um, But he is down to the end of round six on underdog. Now he's RB 25. So to me, that's at a level where I still have questions about him, but I mean, he definitely has upside beyond that and is unlikely to crush you from an RB25 round six starting point. Yeah, I think he's a gamble worth making at RB25. You can get him in you know, round seven, even in round six. I mean, he's he's young, he's big, he's athletic. He's shown something through his first two 
NFL seasons. Um, so yeah, and every 25, even if he loses a few carries per game to Brian Robinson, he loses targets like he did last year in McKissick. Like he, he can still be okay at that price tag. And if either of those guys goes down, he's getting what they're taking from him. So yep. JD McKissick's our RB 56. That's it's late enough to be fine, but he's going behind Jamal Williams, who I like much better. James Robinson, who I'm still not drafting, even though there's the positive report on him lately, not making it onto the pup. Marlon Mack, I would also prefer over McKissick because I think there's more weekly upside. Um, and then he's going just ahead of Mark Ingram, Raheem Mostert. Again, I just think we're talking about basically Naheem Hines here. Yeah, no interest in McKissick in half PPR on underdog. You know, may- maybe in full PPR like the FFPC. But even then, I- I'd rather I'd rather take Brian Robinson for starters. You know, in in the same backfield here. I just think Robinson has has a much higher ceiling if things break right for him. Yep, and he's RB fifty nine, about a round behind McKissick. But I agree, the upside is there. And even when Gibson's healthy, Robinson should get some goal line touches. So even if we're talking about three games where he scores a touchdown, that's value from that starting point. Yeah, I think he's my highest owned, uh, you know, l- later round running back right now in underdog. Logan Thomas down to tight end 26. He's now outside the top 200 players in ADP. So that's late enough where like, if you feel like betting on him, fine. He's still not in the mix for me. I just, I'm skipping because even in that range, I think there's more upside elsewhere. Yeah, you still have, I mean, I, I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather take a shot on Taysom Hill than Logan Thomas. I'd rather take a shot on Mo Alley Cox, Brevin Jordan. Um, yeah, I'm just not interested in, in Thomas, especially again, I, I think he's going to miss at least the first, you know, three, four weeks of the season. I would rather differentiate in the large field tournament and take John Bates at tight end 50, who is probably the number two tight end in Washington. And, you know, if Logan Thomas never really makes it all the way back this year, maybe John Bates is a starter all year and gives us some of those, you know, spike weeks. I don't want to say huge <laughs> spikes, but if, if John Bates delivers you any starter weeks this year, those yeah. kind of spike weeks. Hey, all you got to do is find the end zone at tight end and you're probably going to be a top 12 guy for the week. Mm -hmm. So that's going to do it for the seventh episode of the divisional preview series. We got one more of those to go. It's the AFC East on Thursday. So join us for that much more to come though, from the podcast in general, including a number of shows where we're going to be gathering with our buddies from the deep end podcast, Mike Shope and Adam Krautwurst. We've also got more coming in our beat writer series this week. So subscribe or follow on Spotify, on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your pods to make sure that you don't miss a single episode on the way. For Jared Smola and the rest of the Draft Sharks crew, I'm Matt Schaaf saying thanks so much for some of folks.